0: I'm Sydney Warner-Brooman, and this is I Go to Therapy, a show where I talk to creatives about mental health. We record this podcast on Treaty 13 land, which is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. To learn more about the land we occupy, please visit our show notes. Sanchari Soor is a PhD candidate in English at Wilfrid Laurier University. Their writing can be found in Joyland, Al Jazeera, Room, Hevent, Prism International, and Quire, and elsewhere. They co-edited Watch Your Head, Coach House Books 2020, and are included in Appropriate, Interviews with Canadian Authors on the Writing of Difference, Gordon Hill Press, 2020. They are a recipient of a 2018 Lambda Literary Fellowship in Fiction, a 2019 Banff Residency with Electric Literature, and an ARC Poetry Magazine's 2020 Critics' Desk Award for a Feature Review. Hello, Sanchari. Thank you so Hi. much for coming on. I go to therapy. It's wonderful to have you
1: here. Hi, Sydney. Thank you for having me.
0: It's wonderful to be talking to so many cool people, including you, who are so cool. <laughs> so I, first of all, would love to know if there is a, a piece of art, like a book, a movie, a play, a story, a song, something that you've interacted with recently that you've been obsessed with.
1: I, well, there were actually two books that I read that I really, really enjoyed. One was uh, Raven Leilani's Luster. I only picked it up because Carmen Maria Machado was like, you know, this is an amazing book, you have to read it. And the other one was uh, Shaun King's You're Eating an Orange, You're Naked. That's on
0: my reading list I'm so excited to read that and also I love Carmen Maria Machado and so I would take anything she says as law so I that's I imagine you would like her
1: work considering your work is also like dealing with genres that are mixed
0: I read in the dream house not too long ago and it blew my mind like The structure blew my mind. I was like, people are allowed to write like this. This is wild. I loved it. Loved it. Was horrified, haunted, but in the most beautiful way possible. So I want to order the comic that she's co-written. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, is it good?
1: It's good. In the sense, like, it's doing new things. Yeah. I'm actually not a huge comic fan, but uh, I felt I had to have it for my book collection because I know something I want to keep going back to. I feel like it's also a book you could possibly teach in class. Whoa, so that's what I that's like cool. about uh, Carmen's work because it, it has that quality yeah. and in a way that you can actually connect about themes that may be difficult to talk about, but you can connect about them in a classroom and talk about them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read um, Her Body and Other Parties, her story. Oh, country. what? No. I haven't, I haven't read it. No. Oh, my God. Okay. okay. It's a crime. I know.
1: <laughs> I get it before you read the, get okay. the comic book because I think that yeah. will okay. definitely change a lot of things
0: for you. Okay. Okay. I'm excited. I'm excited. Okay. Getting right into things. Um, While I was reading up on you, reading your work, like completely internet stalking you and things as you do, I came across this term diaspora that I I had seen in a very, very academic sense before. I hadn't seen it applied Like, I had heard it thrown around, but hadn't really seen it applied in an academic and creative sense at the same time. And I was sort of reading how you redefined it to your work. And I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit on your experience with the term and the ways in which that experience impacts what you create and what you do.
1: Okay, so I also encountered it through academia in my undergrad first time. I had never heard of diaspora before. And I think when I put up my blog, I was like really young. I was like, uh, I don't know, 24, I think 23, 24. So I was kind of trying to connect to all of these other, like these things that I had encountered in my undergrad, I think. And uh, so I don't know how much at that time, I mean, I feel like the, the term diasporic itself has uh, it's still contested. Like a lot of people would say that I'm not diasporic, because I'm not, I have not been forced out out of my, uh, you know, where I was born, and I came here of my own volition for better like experiences and better opportunities. Um, I actually disagree with that definition of the term because I think that's where itself means many different things. Uh, the way I understand this, your experiences from where you were born, uh, where culturally, like there's like a history. Of your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents like literally I have a history cultural history of my family going even back to like 14-15 generations the same like geographical space and then when my father decided to move out of Calcutta where I was born like I was born in that city so were my parents things changed because we were suddenly leaving something familiar and I think when you encounter something unfamiliar outside of what's been familiar for a long time, in a way that can be diaspora. And I, I didn't choose to leave. I was nine years old when we left Calcutta. We moved to Dubai. So I lived in the Middle East for like nine years, which was like all of my teenage years, basically. And uh, after that, we moved to Canada when I was 18. I would have ideally liked to move back to India and study there and live there and work there. But I didn't have a choice in the matter. My father was like, no, you were going to study outside? Because I think he also envisioned that for himself, which he couldn't have because of, I guess, his family background or his lack of opportunities at that time. And so, in a way, I got propelled to Canada, the diaspora, the big, away and away and away from where I was originally from because of my father. And I was actually angry with him for the longest time. Like, why do I have to be in Canada? I could go back to, like, I have really strong ties to my birth city. I keep going back every few years. And so of course now I feel in hindsight I am a better writer because of my experiences here. I feel like I've evolved to be a different person. I don't I feel like if I stayed in India, I would be a completely different person as well. I don't know how I'm different, but I do compare myself to my friends who I have gone to school with there. And our mindsets, our value systems are so different sometimes. Like it it like gives me like a shock to my system every time I go back. Um, something simple like even connecting about oh uh, you're not gonna have kids you know like having kids is such a big big thing you get married you have kids and I'm just like but apart from the fact that I can't have kids I also don't want kids because some people don't want kids they have other priorities in life like those kind of things so how has that affected my writing I think you asked me that so that has affected who I am as a person I think overall just it's made me uh like when I came to Canada I had never heard the term South Asian before right for me it was always Indian and Indian literature and Indian writing is what I was drawn to and who I was was Indian um but suddenly I felt like I was a minority like being brown was a thing being South Asian was a thing and so those are things I had to grapple with and come to terms with and then reconfigure my understanding of myself in relationship to people who weren't brown or who weren't South Asian or the idea of, of the fact that the idea of being Canadian, mainstream Canadian, is really being white, right? Uh, and not so much as being like people who look like me, like you have a hyphenated name, South Asian Canadian, but I had to really grapple with that hyphenation. And then I think that just kind of seeped into not only my academic research and my interests, but also I, I would say my creative writing. So stuff that I'm actually attracted to are diasporic writing in that sense. Even if it's second-generation writing, some people would say, oh, this is not diasporic writing. This is second-gen Canadian, South Asian Canadian writing. But I mean, you can label it whatever you want, but in the end, I think it's the, it's the same idea. Like it's still something that has been created because of certain situations or conditions. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it fully does.
0: It does. Um I'm curious to sort of hear about um, the way in which you talked about visiting where you're originally from and speaking to people and those different expectations and things. Like, I was wondering if you could maybe speak on the ways in which differing societal expectations sort of like affect your mental health, like sort of having your influence of where a lot of your friends are from and where your family is from, but then having influence of like expectations from your actual family. And then you're in Canada as well. So there's like different societal influences and expectations and things like that. Like I can imagine that it might be not difficult, but maybe complicated. I don't
1: know if societal expectations affected my mental health so much in that way in a conscious way anyway because I was always silently I think doing things that I really wanted to do like even though I knew it was probably not going to be accepted I was doing those things even growing up even in a place like Dubai which was extremely sheltered and extremely conservative in that sense um but um I think one of the things I, I, that did affect me was, well, two things. One was the fact that, and I wrote about this in an, in an essay for Daily Extra as well, when I like found out that I, didn't ha- I was not going to have periods anymore, which meant my body wasn't producing any more eggs. So technically, I couldn't conventionally like have a child. Register have children if I in vitro and all those like expensive procedures, which I wouldn't advise anybody doing because <laughs> I found out really scary stuff about them. So oh no. like, if you want to have kids, I would really advise like adopting. Please don't subject your body to that. But like when that happened, I-, I was 12 and my parents were terrified about my future prospects. They were just like, How is she gonna get married? Also, I was a very tiny child, but, uh, my, like I was always short. So they were all, like, like, oh, she already has this that makes her stand out as somebody who's not conventional. And now this other thing, like, you know, so all my life I had to keep the, this a fact a secret that I can't just conceive. Like I was told not to share this information with my anybody I was seeing, with my wow. friends. A lot of friends didn't know this about me because I was it was just a big secret I was carrying with myself. And it was only recently that I, like two years ago, that I wrote an essay about it. Two, three years ago, I wrote an essay and then publicly it was just out. And I was was terrified. Even then I was terrified that all these years later, I was finally, even though I was married with a loving partner and all of that, I was still scared, like, how is this going to be received? But once it was out, it was like, oh, okay. It wasn't that bad. Like, why was I, I think my parents were more terrified than I was even though it's like they did not show it to me but that was i think part of the, the societal expectations like oh you can't have a kid normally if you are a woman or a female identified or female looking right yeah. like I'm perceived so then there is something wrong with you and there's something wrong with you then your worst as a woman or as a person is like really low and so i think that affected my self-esteem a lot yeah. um And the other thing I think that affected me as a result of these expectations was probably I had to keep it a secret that I was attracted to both men and women. So I I didn't, bisexuality was not a term that I was familiar with. And we didn't have any like things that you have in high school. Some some high schools anyway, you seem to have uh, where if you are queer, you have a club, you know. being queer was like abnormal especially in a place like in like united arab emirates like no if you were queer you just kept it to yourself and i didn't even queer was not a term i knew you you either were gay or like lesbian or you were straight right yeah it was just it was demonized so i knew i was attracted to girls around the same time i got attracted to guys which was around 13 but i never verbalized it even to myself openly like it's just something i would think about like sometimes like oh i'm attracted like Or I would get tongue-tied around certain girls or certain (laughs) women, but I wouldn't know why. It was only after many years I realized, oh, that was the reason. Because I was attracted to them. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That was just as normal, (laughs) right? So I think those are the things. I I feel like if I had lived in a society where I could have openly come out, maybe I would have been a different person. I I don't know. (laughs) Like I don't regret it. I just feel like that's just a part of my life that I didn't experience fully because... I grew up in Dubai. My formative years were in Dubai. Like the most important like yeah. experiences that you have is that time in your teenage years, I guess. And I there are parts of me that I had to keep secret and hold in. So I was also a very serious child as a result, a serious person. People I think people have perceived me as aloof because I don't talk to them, but that's because I had a lot of social anxiety as a result, I think, in my 20s, yeah. which took me a lot to overcome. So yeah I guess those, I guess that's what my answer is but mental health I think it did affect a lot of things anxiety was a huge part of it depression also um, yeah
0: no it's a good answer I'm just sort of taking it and she said you reminded me when I went through um through a period in which I was sort of noticing girls and being like wow like I just like really want to be all these girls like I'm just so jealous of all these girls and then I suddenly went like oh wait I think (laughs) maybe I don't want to be them maybe I just really like them maybe that's just (laughs) what it's happening with me yeah um sort of going off, um, of the lived experience of, of just being a person who's queer, who creates art, like how important has representation been to you since sort of coming into that identity and being more comfortable in it?
1: Um, I haven't thought about representation consciously. I feel like since I started coming out, which is, shortly before I met my partner, maybe like two years before I met member I was dating another person actually. That's when I started verbalizing the fact that I was attracted to women as well. I didn't identify gender queer back then. I was still that's another thing that I came into as I was opening up to get myself to the idea that yeah, okay, you know what I am queer and I just need to figure out the ways in which I am queer. I just don't know yet. I feel my writing evolved. I felt the more honest I became about who I was and what I wanted and what moved me or inspired me, my writing just became its own thing. So I wasn't, at first, I didn't realize I was writing about characters like myself who were dealing with their queerness but didn't know how to deal with their queerness and it just happened that story after story started coming that was about these queer characters and as I came into myself and publicly more like as a queer person the characters also evolved to be queer more publicly if that even makes sense so but I didn't think about it like oh I'm doing this as representation at the beginning anyway and then later when I've done readings and stuff and I've had people come up to me and tell me that this is their experience and they're so happy that they're like hearing about a brown South Asian queer person, like, like they have seen that, like they haven't had read stories like that before. And to be able to hear that in a public space made them feel seen. So for me, that was a huge validation to keep writing and just being as honest as possible in my writing. Yeah, but it wasn't conscious. That's super cool.
0: How has your academic experience informed the way in which you edit and like interact with creative work?
1: Not so much with editing. I think my background in academia has helped me become a better reviewer, which is a strange offshoot that has happened. I to hate doing book reviews. I mean, I was interested in reading books, but not thinking that critically. I like consuming as much as possible when it comes to books and not write about it or think about it because I do that already in the academic setting so much that I think for the longest time, like it was difficult for me to read for pleasure and read through the critical eye. But the more I started reviewing books, my critical eye was honed as a result. But it was also because of the academic background that I had the critical eye. So it was sort of like feeding itself each other. So I became a better reviewer and hence I became a better like a critical writer in academic work. And hence I became a better reviewer and just kind of like feeding each other. I haven't been an editor that much, like I was an editor in the capacity of like a guest editor with Invisible for like six months, where I mostly curated. And when I was editing somebody's work, it was not just as a, from an academic lens, but I think I was also bringing in the different kind of storytelling practices that I have been subjected to since I was a kid, like not just within my culture, but also stuff I read Right or stuff I've been attracted to or the stories I've come into contact with, even from my family. So I think multiple things affected that experience of being an editor. But currently as a managing editor, um, right now, as of now with Canthius, I'm still doing admin work. So I still haven't come to the point where I have, um, except for one or two submissions, I haven't fully immersed in the submissions yet. And I don't know if this background like of being an academic necessarily, it's different how people perceive me. So like me working with organizations, maybe they perceive me as somebody who has a great critical eye because I'm in academia. So I mean, I would have to thank academia for giving me a space to grow as someone who can look at something critically and be confident in what they're looking at. But I don't think that's something you would like consciously use that to navigate any editing work necessarily. I think for me, it's when it comes to editing, it's more about gut. And I'm also thinking about what if I was writing this piece? What would I keep? What would I take out? So that's I think there's something of that there as well.
0: Yeah, like a more empathetic view rather than like a strictly analytical sort of.
1: Or, yeah, yeah, and how does this, how would this piece work? Like, I don't think the academic thing works necessarily, but I see what you mean, though, because when I'm editing academic work, I do go to that situation as well, but it's it's a little different because academic writing and creative writing are two very different kinds of work. Yeah. Um, But I think I have to, like, access something that I trust as opposed to think about it... As like the academic, like I don't, I don't think I have that academic brain set all the time, anyway.
0: Okay. Yeah. So you see it rather than informing the way you're doing creative work and editing work, you see it as like a separate part, basically.
1: Yeah. So I think I just remembered insomnia. I guess I mean. Well, yeah. So I edited Christopher Evans's uh, collection, which is this amazing collection, which is supposed to come out with your book at the same time, and I was mm-hmm. worried that the two books would compete with each other because. Your book and his book are really, really good in their own right. So when I was editing his work, and he's like a cis white guy, and that's not even my experience as a person. So very different. But I connected with his writing because it's genuinely good writing. Like It's a sharp, visceral, gut writing that you want to connect with, you want to work on. Like I I picked his manuscript and said, I want to edit this. That's amazing. And I normally don't even read cis white guys. If I can help it, because I've read them all my life. I've been forced to an academia, right? I'm yeah. still so reading. Sometimes I will have to read academics who are and white. But I don't think that came from an academic inbox. Or yeah. editing process didn't come from that. Like, I was going at it with, like, okay, what works and what doesn't work. Maybe that was also coming a little bit from my, like, who I am as a person, which is, like, you know, as a person of color and a queer person. Like, But the editing of that whole book was, it was, again, from that... I don't even know how what to call it. Like it's just something like an instinct. Like does this work, yeah. does this work. And so I really enjoyed that process of editing. But that editing process was very different from the editing process I have employed in editing a dissertation chapter, which is also also a gut feeling, but also but but I think I'm more academic in that. Like like is this idea flowing and going into this? And am I explaining this better? Other people out there who've already talked about this idea, and then you go and like look at that and try to make it work somehow. And so that editing is a very different, a little more frustrating than, I guess, editing someone else's work that is creative.
0: Shifting gears a little bit, Could you talk a little bit about how you are personally uh, nurturing your creativity and your mental well-being? Are those things sort of separate? Are those intertwined? Are there things we should all, like practices that we should all sort of be taking on? Or is mental wellness more of a personal sort of thing? I'm just, I'm curious
1: on your thoughts on that. I think I think mental wellness is more personal I haven't been a very creative person since we got into this pandemic mm-hmm. in March 2020 so yeah. I've been doing other things like interviews and book reviews and essays and stuff like that but just creatively writing I'm like, i like I don't think I've written fiction on like since beginning of 2020 I just I'm, I've been unable to and I, it's, I'm fine with it. So I've been focusing on academic work, which is, I feel, a little more easier to focus on because it's so clinical in that sense, I think, yeah. <laughs> compared to creative work, which you just have to, um, yeah. But I've been also looking into a lot into, like, so some of the things that I've been doing I, or I've found myself doing is uh, connecting to the things that I used to do when I was a child. So at the end, enjoy, enjoys to make me happy. So... I mean, I got back into puzzling, but not when it was like a big thing during the pandemic. This is more, this is more like this year. Like I, I finally took out that puzzle i had bought and I started going at it. I got my whole stamp collection from my parents and got back into that as well. Like I'm literally putting, organizing my stamps again and it gives me so much joy. Cause something I used to do when I was 9, 10, 11, you know, it was a long time ago. And I just kept the stamp collection, but even added to it and just not organized them. So it's, Yeah. It's grown over the years. It's just just being there, like pieces of paper accumulating. I think my mom at one point was like going to give it away. And I'm like, no, I'm going to get back to it. It's like, when when you're retired? <laughs> like, when do you make time for stuff like that? And that I think that has been really great for my mental health because um, it's beyond doing something passive like watching Netflix or Amazon Prime, which is also something I used to do a lot. But I feel like it went up a lot during the pandemic because... I think I was I fell back into depression for a while and so that is one of the things another thing is I've been cooking more reconnecting with my mom this has happened more last summer because she was depressed her her sister passed away and not because of COVID but during the COVID time so my mom was not able to fly to India and my mom and her sister hadn't spoken for like three years at that mm-hmm. point so my mom feels less you know the skills that she couldn't reconnect because she always thought there was time that at some point they would hash it out and have that big fight and it never happened so as a way to connect with my mother I was also connecting to Bengali cooking I started cooking a lot of fish curries which take a lot of time to cook so that's something I would not have uh like attempted in the past because it's just scary I, I don't know if you ever cooked like fish curry but you have to fry the fish first and okay. frying anything is to scare the shit out of me. So especially fish because it's just the oil goes everywhere. It's just always, yeah. Yeah. But I found a way now and I'm not scared of it. And I can make fish curry. So um yeah, that was one of the things. Um we recently my my partner and I moved closer to my parents. So my parents are literally walking distance now. It's awesome. My sister lives like two buildings down at this point. And so I've been making it a point to like spend more time with them in person. It's great. Right. Yeah, uh, especially my sister, because my sister and I, we're not estranged, but we're not close. And definitely not as close my, as my mother used to be with her sister, which is why it hurt her so much when her sister passed away. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I don't want to be that person who's not close to her sister. We live so close to each other. And I think my sister feels the same too, because she's growing older now. She's coming 30 this year. And so she and I have been making an effort to spend some time with each other now and then. Yeah. And I think that's been good for our bonding. Maybe in like, I don't know, a few years, we'll get closer, like my how my mom and her sister used to be. But I don't know. I don't know. You can't really predict what what's in the future. Yeah. that's That's been great for my mental health and connecting, reconnecting with old friends. Um, friends are not here who are like in India or elsewhere. Making time for them and like, you know, having video chats or whatever and just reconnecting.
0: Yeah, it's weirdly been, um, it's been exhausting sort of doing a lot of work over Zoom and then also having like normal off work social Mm -hmm. time, having to be over Zoom as well. But it's been so necessary for me to connect to people and I'm connecting with people who I really otherwise wouldn't have connected to as much, like just friends from Afar, who I normally, we just wouldn't be on camera a lot seeing each other's faces, but it's been, like, we're so used to using these platforms now that it's sort of just, like, one more Zoom call to put on, and it's actually been really nice they have all these like games that you can play with people now and like Ooh. all these things like who can like still have a family meltdown because someone lost Settlers of Catan and you can't like physically flip a table, but you can still be like outraged on camera or whatever, right? Well,
1: I'm going to be attending a baby shower on Zoom. A Zoom time. baby shower. Wow. <laughs> and well, since your your podcast has the word therapy and I just realized I stopped going to therapy. Oh, Wow. Once the pandemic started, not because I don't need therapy. I do need therapy. I just can't do it over phone.
0: Yeah.
1: And my university is not set up for video chat for therapy, which is extraordinary considering that they're still charging us the same amount of money for therapy part of it. So it goes from our tuition and the tuition hasn't gone significantly, except for some, maybe a few hundred dollars. It hasn't gone significantly down like universities in all over Canada, not just Ontario, Yeah. which also pisses me off because that's been an extra stress of like paying my tuition every few months. Like I'm literally living term to term because I don't know. And I think that's also delayed my dissertation. I don't think the support from the university has been that great. And it's unfair to, sorry, I just need to rant about this. since you're Oh, asking. yeah. I think it's unfair to expect professors to take that burden on. No, the professors should not be taking that burden on. They are stretched thin, thin themselves. Like they need therapy. Why is the school not looking into this or doing something and how dare you even charge us the same amount of tuition when, same with international students, nothing has changed when they're sitting in their home countries and if they're lucky, if they have access to the internet, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I know a grad student who is in Calcutta and she is a student at the University of Western Ontario uh, in a PhD program. And she's so classes have officially started. So she's still doing the classes sitting in Calcutta, and her tuition is not significantly low. She's getting charged as an international student. Wow. So uh, this is something nobody's talking about that students are suffering. Yeah, sure, we got offered the SERP, but like our that other student thing that uh, Truda offered us, but like no offense, that was like a shitty band aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're struggling here, right? And yeah. mental health, I think the government, the state has a hand in like screwing with our mental health. So
0: Oh, it definitely does. It and so does definitely the university. Not. They are just as, oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that you would be paying the same amount of benefits to not receive the benefits. Like
1: why are we paying, I think it's almost, it's a few hundred dollars at least for an athletic center now.
0: Yeah. Is
1: yeah. there, are no, you? No, why? Why are we doing
0: this? Yeah, exactly. It should be at least um, redirected and put into some kind of resources for you or just lessons so, it. That, so that yeah. you can use that money for something else, like whatever else. Yeah. Whether it be something like therapy or not just to live, right?
1: Like they claim that grad students have it great, like grad students in the humanities, especially who's doing research online because all the books are available. That's BS. Recently, I couldn't get a hold of this essay in a journal that was like published earlier in Jan. and I was I was scrambling because this is a brand new uh, issue on like queer studies in Canada, which is like a huge part of one of my chapters. And I'm like, I need to read this. This is like I have to, right? couldn't get it. I connected connected with the university, connected like racer is that thing they use where they borrowed from another university. The issue was like house the journalist house at the University of Toronto. They couldn't buy it apparently, whatever the reasons were, I couldn't get it for a good like few days. And then finally I was like, screw this. I got in touch with one of the issue editors. I explained the situation and they sent me the introduction because uh, they were fine from the kindness of their hearts.
0: Yeah. So, but they shouldn't have to do that though. Yeah, like that's yeah, the university ridiculous. couldn't help me. The
1: library couldn't help me. Wow. So what are we paying for?
0: (laughs) That's incredibly frustrating. I remember when I even, high graduated my undergrad and suddenly couldn't access, like I had a family doctor through the university and couldn't, The day I graduated, couldn't call to get my files transferred to a new doctor, couldn't speak to my doctor, couldn't refill any of my prescriptions, couldn't do anything like the day I graduated and then didn't have a family doctor for a year and had to go to the eMERGE to get refills on medications and things. Whereas I'm sure, like, realistically, somebody could have just spoken to the woman who was still there, who was my doctor, right? But it's all this this weird red tape and this odd sort of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then my parents are like, stop stressing about all of that. And why did you just
1: focus on finishing your dissertation? Because it's so easy to just focus on finishing your dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, these structures that we think are solid are not really that solid. They don't help the individual at all.
0: In that vein, um, is there anything that you would like to talk a little more about or something completely different that you'd like to speak on that we haven't talked about yet?
1: I assume you want to talk about if it's cathartic to write creatively and if that helps with mental health. I don't think that's true for everybody, as as I would say. And to think that creative writing should be used for catharsis is also limiting yourself as a writer. So, I mean, you can use it as catharsis, but you shouldn't always be thinking about peddling your trauma.
0: Yeah,
1: it's true. Just because people out there are writing about their trauma doesn't necessarily mean, like, there can be a lot of pressure to you feel that you have to also reconnect with your trauma and write that. If it doesn't come normally to you, if you no. feel you're not ready to face that trauma, then I don't think as a writer, you should have to face it. So I think that's what I would say, like writing is meant to liberate you in some ways, I think. And if it's not doing that for you, then maybe ask yourself why you're a writer uh, or who you're writing for. Because, yeah, it shouldn't, it shouldn't give that extra stress on you just because you feel like you should be writing certain things just because everybody else is.
0: No, I definitely agree that there's, there's a lot of pressure to sort of, to make whatever your story is like marketable and sellable and to bare your soul and to expose yourself in order to make money and to sort of like, it's when like a quote unquote, a trauma story like starts becoming like a trend and it sort of becomes this like, your story doesn't have to be marketable. It doesn't have to be anything. It doesn't even have to be shared. It's not like you shouldn't think that because you're a writer and you happen to have a trauma history that you need to write about that at all. And even the way in which you approach that can be completely separate from your creative practice, definitely.
1: Yeah, and I think this also goes for editors for maybe pushing that on writers. Uh, Maybe I've been guilty about that myself. Uh but I've also had it being pushed on me. Uh like when I was just starting out to like start trying to get my work published in Canadian literary magazines, I wanted to do a book review of Sarah Beerbai's Tell. And I because I really connected with the I don't know if you've read the collection, but it's basically about Rena Burke, who was murdered at 14. She was bullied and murdered by like by a bunch of her peers. And it was just this horrific incident in, like, Canadian history. And it's not even that long ago, but, like, Rena Burke and my age, like, she was probably a little older than I was okay. when she died. Um, like, yeah, like, I think, in a sense, like, we were, uh, almost peers. Yeah. That's what I yeah. mean. That's why we, I really connected with that. But I was also, re- like, triggered to remember about this, this traumatic memory from childhood. So in the book review, that's how I approached it. But I didn't write about the Like I didn't yeah. go into details of my traumatic stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. I just
1: talked about this is why I was attracted to the book. And then I went to the, the, the review of the book. And the book reviewer at the time for that magazine, he's no longer with them, was this guy. He was a person of color, too, but it was extremely cis and... He was like oh you need to one of his feedback was like you need to write about your trauma like you need to give more details and I was like are you kidding me like
0: no like it's, what, are you, what does he saying?" But,
1: but I didn't know any better to challenge him than like yeah. now yeah. I would just slam that person like or, I, yeah I say, it, like, on earth. Yeah. No, yeah at that time I was no one and he was like an established poet and stuff right it's, it's funny because I still encounter him sometimes. And I think to myself, is that why you never published my book review? Because I just couldn't do that. I couldn't do those no. revisions. No. Finally, I worked around it and I gave, it took me a little longer. I think I submitted the revision maybe like a week later. And he was like, oh, you submitted this too late. We've already accepted someone else's book review. So though I wow. did the work and get published, I was so upset. I didn't ask for the yeah. at that time, but I was just like... I, and I didn't know why I was upset. i like, maybe somehow I had failed. I was upset with myself. Like, I was like, yeah. I could have been published in this magazine. But um, now, in hindsight, I know that I was right. And he was wrong. And whatever he did, what I would say, it was like bullying in some sense. I don't think he was doing it on purpose. I think he was more like, how to make this review more juicy or something. I don't even know.
0: Yeah, it's a weird expectation that we need to, to share such intimate details of our lives in order to make, yeah. like it's almost saying that someone can't connect to me through like the work I'm producing. So yeah. I need to make my story sadder or more emotional in order for them <laughs> to connect yeah. to me. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I could definitely rant about that for a very long time. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I think reviewers, I mean, uh, editors, right not reviewers, have that uh, responsibility as well. Yeah. Not impose this, even unconsciously, because that's why I think it was unconscious, because I believe I may have done something, maybe not trauma, dramatically, but maybe pushed on somebody to write about a certain experience because I felt that's what the essay should have been about. So I would say, yeah, editors have to be way more self-reflective when like mm-hmm. working with writers, especially because you don't know who's coming from what kind of traumatic background or what experience. no exactly. And yeah you can't make those assumptions either. Yeah
0: I completely agree. So we are about to go into our last um, little more fun question, but I just wanted to take a moment to thank you so much for coming and speaking to me on the podcast. Thank you for being so, so thoughtful and so insightful. And just thank you for participating and for pairing with my questions and things like that. I just wanted to. Well, thank
1: you for the opportunity, honestly, because I, I think it's a great series. More people need to be talking about the intersection of, therapy and mental health and creative work, for sure.
0: If you had no limitations at all, money, burdens, time, fear, um, what would you be creating right now, if anything?
1: Okay, so I I looked at that as a talking point and honestly, I have two answers. Yeah. One is I would write the book that I've always wanted to write since I was like a teenager, which I feel like I'm not gonna end up writing until I'm in my forties. It's just a giant book project that I've been carrying in my head for for years, which has a lot of, like, I guess, family stuff in it. So I'm also hoping maybe some of the people I write about will pass away by then. I don't know. <laughs> because I don't want to get, like, accused of, like, writing more yeah. stuff. But I think at this point, I'm also not scared of, like, who, whose egos I hurt. And huh. like, there's I feel like there are some stories that need to be told, and they are going to get told, even if through a fictional way. But on the other hand, if I had all of that money and like I don't have to worry about anything at all, I may not have been creating at all as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm just been, may have been traveling. Like, I, I feel like I love traveling a lot, and maybe I don't know. I feel like maybe for my impulse, my impulse to create comes from a place where I've always felt like I don't want to end up, and it's such a self indulgent impulse, because it's like I, I, I don't want to be nobody. I don't want to be someone who is nothing which is a weird thing because just because you are not a writer or a creator or an artist doesn't mean you're, you're not but I think that has been an impulse for wanting to write because I've always felt special like when you're young when you're like in grade three and you're writing poetry your your teacher is gonna always try to make you feel like you're amazing and so I've had that in school a lot but I don't think that's the right impulse anyway to write. I think the right impulse should be something more like close to you, something more personal. So the impulses that I have right now may have been as a result of the things that I have experienced that were hardships in some sense, or things that I still negotiate with like mental health. But I don't know if I were, if I didn't have any burdens, if I do not have to worry about anything and thinking about even like stuff like, I don't know, racial microaggressions and stuff like that, which you encounter quite often in the academic space, if I had all the opportunities at my feet, would I even be in academia? I don't know. But yeah, if I, if I didn't have those burdens, if I, I would be a different person. And I don't know if that person would necessarily have an impulse to create because they already have access to everything. So I don't know. I, yeah, that's a good answer. Not that you need hardships to create, but I mean, I feel like maybe hardships like push you to be a different Person, and that made it lead to an yeah. impulse
0: to so, yeah. Even if sort of you would be a different, your, your creations would be different, right? You would be a different...
1: If I was creating, I don't know. I think a lot of my creating impulse also comes from, like, the fact that my grandfather was an artist, my, my paternal grandfather, my maternal grandfather uh, introduced me to, like, the love of, like, the language English. And books were always in my life because my parents were encouraging this habit of reading. And so a lot of that impulse also comes from like reading work and then thinking about stuff that you want to write about, like worlds that you want to see. It's, a, it's like many little different things, but I think if everything is like given to you on a platter, sometimes you you just continue being a self-indulgent person. Like you don't have to think about anything. Like if I were a cis white Man, I suppose, or even a cis white woman, I guess, who had everything easy, who was conventionally good looking and who, who was rich, who, who could just go wherever they wanted. Um, I, I would have other opportunities. Maybe my impulse would be to like be in politics. I don't know, to get power some other way. I, I don't know. I feel like your life defines who you are in some way, your impulses in that sense. So I mean, I think that's a good question because it made me think a lot about what has led me to write. Like now, obviously, my impulse for writing is completely different. But when I initially started, it was like, I want to be noticed in my class, you know, I was I was I was just an ordinary student. Like I wasn't topping and I wasn't like flunking. I was like a little above average and Mm. it was a big class of like 100 students. And I was I stood out because I was a writer.
0: i go to therapy is hosted by sydney warner brumman and produced by christian hegley original music and sound mixing by christian hegley you can find us on i go to apple podcasts spotify or anywhere else you get your podcasts from If you're on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. It would rock our world, and that's not an understatement. We love you. Thank you. See you next time.